0: In episode 57 of Design EDU today, Mina Kalili, assistant professor at the University of Louisville, joins us to discuss the education of an I shaped versus a T shaped student. Mina goes in depth on what skills actually constitute a T shaped student, including where coding and UX UI fit on the T shaped diagram. The discussion also covers startling statistics from the Department of Labor on the decline of graphic design jobs and the exponential growth of interactive design jobs. Finally, we end the conversation with a discussion on how design education can lead the industry and not follow it. Hello, and welcome to DesignEDU Today, the podcast series discussing what is necessary to be a successful designer in a contemporary screen-based interactive world. I am your host, Gary Rosance, Assistant Professor of Graphic Design at the University of Maryland, Baltimore County. Today's guest is Mina Khalili. Mina is an assistant professor at the University of Louisville and earned her BFA in illustration and received her MFA in visual communication and graphic design from VCU Arts. Khalili's work has been shown at the Type Directors Club of New York, Chicago Design Museum, and galleries throughout North America, Canada, China, Indonesia, Australia, and Moscow with book art in the permanent collection at the VCU Library's Special Collection and Archives. Her research crosses boundaries between traditional design and studio art practices and explores typography and language through design, illustration, moving image, and book art. She completed study at the Illustration Academy and the LDM Institute in Florence, Italy, and finds inspiration in travel, culture and her experience as a first generation Iranian American in addition to her international exhibition schedule she maintains an active speaking schedule with engagements and workshops throughout the US and in Doha Qatar Welcome Mina
1: Oh it's great to be here with you Gary
0: Oh well thank you so much for taking the time out of your day to do this I, I appreciate it um, before we get the I jump into my questions I think it's probably important that I let the audience know that a lot of these questions came from a presentation that you gave at the CCac conference and so uh, just, I just wanted them to know that a lot of this conversation may seem scripted in a an unusual way but it's there's some backstory there
1: <laughs> sure yeah uh, and and that's the southeastern College art conference I believe yeah yes
0: I like the conference so I'm gonna I'm giving it a plug right now because I I yeah it, it was a nice little it's a nice little conference. I I can't, I agree. Yeah. All right. Um, so can you talk more about the, in your presentation at the conference, um, Mm -hmm. you talked about the typography technology shifts. Mm -hmm. Um, can you talk about what that is?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, um, I, I work with, uh, with this Wonderful professor, his name is Stephen Skaggs um, and he developed this graph that I really really identified with and I and I talked about it in my in my talk there at CCac and it really sort of covers a timeline of printing from writing by hand to machine to computer. And while it begins with like the earliest writing systems as far back as like I think three thousand BCE, what I'm really most interested in is the time just before and sort of since Gutenberg. So we're sort of considering that in 1325, we're using black letter script during the time of the Black Death. Then we move to a humanist script before landing on the invention of metal typography around 1450 to the first letterpress printed book by Gutenberg. And that invention... That that typographic technology that we're talking about really sort of took us all the way through Michelangelo's Pietà, the first Thanksgiving, Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, the invention of photography, the invention of typewriters, two world wars, Elvis, (laughs) the British invasion. I I mean, obviously the list goes on. In the 1960s, some camera-ready typesetting was available in the workplace on these standalone machines. But... The rapid charge of digital technology was really already moving forward by that point. And by the mid-1980s, graphic designers could use commercially available design software to create and print their own typefaces. So this democratization, I guess, of typography um, brought this design within arm's reach And drastically lowered the cost of typeface production and changing, um, really the landscape of design as we knew it at that point. And Mm -hmm. it, and it all happened in this blip and that's sort of what is on my, that slide that you, (laughs) that you had seen is just the word blip. Like we had letterpress for so long and then boom, computers and it's gone. The trajectory has just gone so quickly. Uh, things have gone by so fast.
0: So, can you talk a little bit more about, like, the current shift, though, like, the technology shift, like, after that boom? Uh, what do you mean? Um, okay. So, let me, like, so, in your presentation, you also started, like, I wanted, one of my follow-up questions was, how are you training your students to meet these technology shifts? But I, can you talk a little bit more about the technology shift before you talk about how you train the students for it?
1: Oh my gosh. Well, i you know, we, we went through, um, so if we're talking about, uh, letterpress and, you know, handwritten, um, letter forms and and these perfectly created forms there's a lot of control there Um, and i'm just talking about one facet of this just one facet of this would be the um outstanding amount of say typefaces that are available or fonts that are available to choose from online Um, so this is just one facet of this technology shift but you you went from having um a select amount of of typefaces to choose from, um, and, you know, either using rub on type or rub down type and, um, or having these, uh, typefaces that you would carefully curated, um, that you would bought, uh, and spend a lot of money on um, maybe in your system on your computer, and then suddenly the say the internet comes into play, and now you've got an onslaught of uh, fonts to choose from from DaFont.com or wh- wherever. And as a designer, you need to be able to discern with what is best in terms of legibility what is the most appropriate in terms of uh, maybe the solution that you're coming up for, uh, with. So, uh, that is just one tiny little facet of, uh, of what happens, um, when we suddenly get our access to so much, um, in terms of these technology shifts. And, and I'm, that's again, just one small, small bit of the puzzle. All
0: right. So how do you train your students to, work within that new context?
1: Well, uh, outside of reminding them that the days of feeling comfortable, uh, with any one set of tech skills are gone by. <laughs> um, I, I really try to teach, uh, my design students to, um, have, um, intention. And this is something that we've talked about before intention, as opposed to seeking out immediacy. So, I try to um, help them uh, curate substance in their work by looking at um, really everything that they can reading everything that they can um, writing about what they've learned uh, reflecting on the work that they've done um, and I and I realize that this might not be the answer that you would think that I would give. Um, but my students, they, they write more than I think they ever thought that they would in a design class. They read more books. Um, I, I assign them, uh, lots of reading and, uh, really for every piece of design that they complete, they, they are charged with articulating, um, a reflection, um, articulating their intention through a a presentation of their work. And, and they also write about that, uh, about their work afterwards.
0: Okay. Um, I want to follow up on one of those. The, so, the technology shifts in, in typography. One that there, there's one that's kind of a two part that comes to mind, and it's performance. So, when you're dealing with print, you could have, you, if it, if it uh, contextually made sense, mm-hmm. you could have an unlimited number of fonts, and it's not going to hurt the design. Yeah. If you try to do that with the web, you're going to blow up the page because it's just going to take forever to download. <laughs> so, you've so do you have you started like having those discussions with students like the performance idea of typography?
1: Yeah, we talk a lot about accessibility and and I th- I think that that is where that conversation starts to happen. Um, I also, I also often remind them that they don't want their developer to hate them. Um, so that when they're, when they're designing, um, they have to keep in mind, um, a a certain ability, um, for rendering these say graphics or, or, uh, or letter lettering or type. Um, so to keep that in mind when they're, when they're developing their designs, um, first off, we don't want to overload the viewer, make them blind to our design. Um, but also we want to keep our, our, our designs accessible to the people who are using, um, these, either these interfaces or, or these, um, screens. And, and also, we want to keep our, our relationship with our developer good.
0: Yeah. And it, it's kind of funny. I It just popped into my head right now. But 15 years ago, we wanted to keep our relationship with our printer good.
1: Absolutely. <laughs> <So> no. now,
0: <laughs> it's the same thing. Yeah. It's literally the same thing.
1: It is. And in fact, I find um, this is something really small, but uh, I find that my students will interchange the words margin and padding. Mm-hmm. They... <laughs> So we'll be in a print class and they'll be talking about padding and, and, and I find that to be sort of in maybe endearing to our, our, um, the fact that we are professors of this, um, uh, but also it's, it's just kind of interesting that these two languages are starting to intersect in, in, in these courses.
0: Yeah. I always have to correct myself cause I will say line spacing instead mm-hmm. of letting, and I'm yes. like, I I always force them to correct myself because they need to hear both, not just one or the other. Um, <laughs> can't forget that history. So uh, one last follow-up on the typography. Um, are you familiar with variable fonts? I didn't think to ask you this beforehand.
1: Um, yes. Yes, I am. Okay. Uh, I mean, not not within, uh, not extremely.
0: <laughs> yeah. Okay. So just this is for the audience. This isn't for you because if, you, if you're familiar with the term variable fonts, um, you get it, but you don't have to understand it because I don't fully understand it. But it's essentially it essentially is... Like a
1: flexible, a flexible yeah, typeface?
0: Yeah, it's more or less... Oh, the, okay. okay, yeah. Yeah, it's more or less the entire font family Scola um, or universe all mm-hmm. compiled into one font. And now yes. you can just adjust three settings to get a different weight, a different, um, uh, you know, italicized or, or condensed or or extra wide or whatever. You can do it all in, in one font. And I'm just thinking out, out, you know, I've been thinking to myself, cause I'm teaching a beginning type class this semester. Mm-hmm. And I was like, literally we're, we're designing something and I only said, okay, you can only use one font family for this project. And I thought more and more, I was like, that's going to be the way the web is going to work because of variable fonts being a f- smaller file size Mm -hmm. and giving you this enormous flexibility that that's i i can just see like design bending that way because Mm -hmm. it's going to be such a huge advantage to the development side that they're going to kind of almost insist it i'm just wondering if you had like had any musings (laughs) on variable fonts yourself
1: well um you know i'm going to go out on a limb and go ahead and say that um maybe at an unpopular opinion, I, I would love that. Um, Mm -hmm. I tend in my, in those, in those projects, you know, I do tend to give those assignments in a similar fashion. You can only use one, um, family for this and, you know, any typeface or any font within that family is, is up for grabs. Um, and I, I can see that. I can see that absolutely happening. And I, I think again, um, you know, in a world where data is, is something that we have to pay for, um, and net neutrality is something that, that is looming over our heads, um, the easier it is to, to be able to see and, um, interact with this information, um, on, uh, websites, which are, and it, well, I'll just say interfaces, which are more and more content driven, um, designed for content is what I mean. Um, that, uh, that that sounds like a good way to go. <laughs> and, and, you know, and I didn't even mention, um, that the other, another thing is I mentioned accessibility, um, that faces are also, um, we're in this, we're in this place now where you're, you're able to develop a typeface that helps someone who has, um, say saying in the case of my, uh, colleagues, colleague, professor Skaggs, uh, developing a typeface for someone who has macular degeneration um, and helping the aging population, the baby boomers who are who are looking at their devices and needing them to work for them um, he's been developing a typeface that um, called I think maxular which is for folks with macular degeneration um, So that's another facet of of this, really sort of amazing, um, shift in technology that we're seeing in terms of typographic tech that is really just, I think incredible. And, and again, I'll, I'll say again, it it's happening so quickly. We, we had the letterpress, um, for so long <laughs> <laughs> and then very, very quickly we, we all of a sudden we're here and, and we're already looking on the horizon constantly at the things that
0: are coming down the pike. Yeah, and with the variable fonts, another, like, th- another thought about that is um, so people, you know, with, with dyslexia, there's like with the variable font, like no matter what your visual or reading disability is, the variable font has like these variable axes that could be changed that mm-hmm. could easily be hooked into with like a little job with like, a little button JavaScript make wider you know so the, yeah uh, anyway it's just it's geeky the where all this stuff could kind of go and these are all variables that we're gonna have to teach students to be aware of
1: <laughs> yes yeah and I I don't I don't usually um, yeah we teach them to be aware of them so we're, we're teaching them to cast a really wide net in, in terms of their um, ability to learn on their own and put it into practice in our in our classes, um, yeah, I believe I
0: believe that that was one heck of a wonderful segue into the next question and And that is at the presentation, you also mentioned the i shaped person versus the t-shaped person. Yeah. so for right. the listeners, who don't already know, can you briefly describe the I-shaped person and the T-shaped person?
1: Sure, Um, okay, so this is a pretty widely used model and um, really one I think that we need to be referencing every time we talk about the future of design education. Um, The I-shaped person can also be called the functional expert um, that uh, really has a laser focus on a singular mastery, I'll say, but um, so it, it could be it could be like content development, um, graphic design, um, maybe SEO, analytics, or web development. Like they have, like they have a singular focus. They're laser focused on it. But there's really no cross functionality in the I-shaped person. So enter the T-shaped person, um, and that person is also a functional expert, but utilizes more cross-functional awareness than the I-shaped person. Um, this would mean that the T-shaped person sort of has a uh, I'll, I'll say a wide again, cast a wide net. So they they sort of have a broad range of knowledge, in um a range of disciplines, uh, but a deep knowledge in a single specialization. So while they have a core specialization or area of interest, like say graphic design. They also retain the ability to work outside of that area, um, outside of that core specialization. So, like um, a designer who also has a good knowledge of content or web development would be a good T-shaped person.
0: You have like a, a, a list of like what are those necessary skills? If you were gonna, our our the target is we got a graphic design student. So what what are what are, what gives them those T shapes?
1: Oh my gosh, that is such a long answer. (laughs) And, and I don't, I don't necessarily have a list because I think that that does the opposite thing that, that, that really true that that a a good professor would be doing if they were trying to, um, you know, continue to teach these, uh, pupils to be T-shaped. Um, but uh, you know, I, I will say um, a lot of it has to do with curriculum, um, f- at least for us at the the height. So I'm, I'm at uh, University of Louisville, and we have the Height Art Institute here at UofL. Um, and I joined uh, about 18 months ago, I guess about 19 months ago by now, um, but in August of 2016. And really when I was brought in, I was... Um, I was sort of charged with bridging gaps in our curriculum to allow for more interaction and technologically complex um, courses in our offerings. But you know, you have to understand that when you come to that point that the solution really um, is so multifaceted. it's not quite as simple as adding an advanced web design course here or an interaction course there. Um so, what my colleagues, um, Leslie and Steve and I, did um, at the time was sort of take on the in, the task of revamping our curriculum entirely. So we opened up room for students that have interest in particular areas of specialization to dig in and um, uh, sort of provide them with the freedom in this curriculum to do that. Uh, we created what we call now our carousel classes. And they're these Particular classes are called carousels because they're offered every other year on a rotating basis and allow advanced students or really eager students, if they're not advanced, maybe they're sophomores, um, but they're really, really eager to learn about, say, um, design for interaction or um, environmental design. Um, so we, we created those classes for them to pick and choose areas of specialization to add to their design education experience that was really casting a wide net. So... Doing that big overhaul and revamp to our curriculum um, sort of gives graphic design um, at the height uh, encourage more encouragement to develop, um, more T-shaped designers. So if design is at the stem of the T form, we try to get them to extend their arms and sort of have interest areas outside of design that inform the work that they do. Um, their core area of interest is always going to remain, um, whether it's design for interaction, UX, UI print or package design, um, it's at the root of their work, but we encourage them to um, go outside of just the things that they like to do, trying to get them to discover ways of working or subject matter with which they're unfamiliar. And, and we have an MFA program here too, and we find this especially to be especially necessary uh, with our graduate students um, in the interdisciplinary MFA program. Uh, but at the undergraduate level, what we're finding with employers is that the importance of such dexterity Um, is just, is rampant. And we, you know, it's something that we are deeply concerned with, of course, in our BFA program, because we have have 80% of our students, at least, um, I believe at last count, at least, uh, participating in in an internship for an average of four semesters before they graduate. And um, 85, at least 85% of our graduates are uh, actively employed in the design field, and they're at you know, ESPN or PepsiCo, Griffin, um, Phillips. Um, but what we're trying to do is continue to keep them viable hires <laughs> in this field that that we know is rapidly changing. So this is how we're trying to begin to think about how we teach design for tech that doesn't exist yet um, in a field that's rapidly shifting.
0: Yeah. You know, when it comes to the, I guess I should have asked the question about the T-shaped person. I asked you, like, what what skills to put into the T part if you yeah, will yeah. <laughs> but i think i what what i really meant to ask is like ux uh design content strategy coding
1: yeah yeah
0: those aren't I, i'm fundamentally saying thinking that those aren't the t anymore but those are the actual i
1: <laughs> mm yeah oh, okay Okay. So you mean the arm versus the, the stem? Can we, can we be typing? Yeah.
0: So the the UX is the stem now and not Uh just. Just the arms. Yeah. yeah, Just the arms. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah. Uh, Yeah, absolutely. So, so if I'm working with a designer who wants to be, um, to be focused on user experience, um, I I hasten to use the word empathy because I feel like that word is becoming so much of a buzzword that we're losing the truth of it.
0: Yes. Um, But go ahead. (laughs)
1: <laughs> but another conversation, but um, I, I do think that uh, being able to place our, ourselves in the shoes of our user is imperative. I, and I know I'm not the only one. Um, the designer is really accountable for predicting outcomes of, of the design action that the user is experiencing. So um, I, I would say, you know, for, for the arms of this one, um, like I said, I, I, I don't, I don't necessarily want to use the word empathy. So what about the word research? So the students, that I I have in my interaction, uh, courses, they, they are responsible for so for just so much research at the start of a project. So they're developing personas, for instance, they're, they're getting a clear target demographic. This is research that, um, that we see a lot in maybe other areas of, uh, of a college of arts and sciences, um, that we see a lot in marketing, um, and business. Um, and, and we need to be seeing in, in design schools, um, the this sort of development of uh, demographic and understanding clear target demographic, um, that research and then and then of course students are also carrying that research through the middle and the end of a project. So they're doing plenty of story mapping, revising those story mapping uh, those story maps. Um, they're doing A B and user, uh, testing of wireframes and, um, things like that. So this research for in particular, the UX designer is, is going to help them articulate the experience of the user
0: better. And, and I'm with you on the empathy one and I'll, (laughs) and I'll go out and I'll, and I'll say this for the record. I've probably already said it, but I I don't like the term empathy because it's not empathy. It's simply just research. Yeah. (laughs) You can be an asshole you could do research, and you can make something functional for somebody that makes their life easier.
1: And, <laughs> the, and you're you're an asshole. You're, you're yeah. not empathetic at
0: all. Yeah. yeah. It's it, so it's it's not you're not teaching them how to be an empathetic person. You're teaching them how to identify a problem that somebody is experiencing that may yeah. not be naturally visible <laughs> through research. Yes.
1: <laughs> yes. And it's quantifiable. You you can have a conversation about that with somebody who is not a designer. And I think that, that is also a, a facet of the T-shaped um, design student is, is that you are able to have a conversation about what it is that you do that is um, approachable by somebody who is not necessarily in your core specialization. That's so, so important
0: for what we do. Yeah. And you don't have to look at somebody and, and feel for their plight to do it yes that's true (laughs) i mean we all should and i hope we would but that's why i have so much trouble with the term (laughs) Uh, i I have this uh, this question written down and you've kind of already answered it but are there any classes that you are currently teaching or you know in the recent past that you think prepare the t-shaped person or how are you going about (laughs) preparing that t-shaped person
1: it's funny that you ask this. I I only say I only laugh because I have a student in my uh, interaction class, which I taught this morning, and um and I, I let on a hint about I guess the next project that they're doing. They're currently doing a speculative design project, and um and so the next project, I guess I had hinted to something, and somebody else's ears perked up, and this one student goes, "You know she's just going to switch it up on us. Don't don't listen to her right now." <laughs> And that that's kind of part of how i I approach the the answer mm-hmm. to your question here. Um, so I while i I try to bring this um, uh, this mindset of of helping to prepare the T-shaped designer to all of my classes. It's sort of become one of my teaching goals, there are really a couple of courses that I've written into our curriculum um, that uh, I've I've really sought out to make that the entire purpose of the course. <laughs> um, so I think what this one particular student was, was sort of citing was, um, uh, how I have, I, I will, I will create a project and then I will throw a monkey wrench into something and I will expect them and these are advanced students. Okay, let me just <laughs> let me just back up and say they are advanced students. I'm not doing this to to the the younger students that you know we we don't want to scare too much yet, <laughs> but uh, to the advanced students, I'll throw in a monkey wrench that they will have to they they will have to adapt to, or they have to confront. And when when they have to do that, it makes them relook at everything that they've done, and it reminds them that what they're doing. It is not precious to, it should not be precious to them unless it works for the user. And that's, that's the important thing they have to keep in mind. So one of the courses that I teach, I, the first, the first seven weeks of the, of this particular course, um, is really about, uh, learning, uh, how to be resilient and dexterous, And those are two words that I use often when I'm talking about how I teach. They're very, very important qualities, I think, that I can help deliver to a student. The motto of this particular course is a Seth Godin quote, which is art is when a human being does something that might not work. It reminds us of both our fallibility and our responsibilities as designers. Uh, That's why I like that quote so much. And um, that course really focuses on prolific generation of content, aggregation, curation, bridging physical and digital experiences and predicting the outcomes of design action. And they work on seven different projects that are week sprints for the first seven weeks of this course. And then the final seven weeks, they choose one of those projects and they really, they really hit it home. And um, it's been a very successful, very, very successful course. um, So far, I've been here.
0: With the with your monkey wrenches that you throw into things, are they are they like your are they scripted that you're like oh I've I know I'm gonna throw this <laughs> twist? Are they like totally like organic, dependent on like the situation and you know which way the wind's blowing and random ideas that pop into your head?
1: <laughs> oh god, the latter would be terrible. I I definitely plan the the monkey wrench because I. I also have another thing that I like to say, which is that we want to we want to prepare you for success. Like, I'm not out to go in and and sort of screw with somebody's mind here. But but at the same time, I mean, anybody who has been in the field for long enough can tell you that, um, you know, when a client comes to you and says, oh, well, we. We've realized that uh, what we asked for in terms of, say, the size—that's a simple one. Um, what we've asked for in terms of size needs to be smaller or needs to be changed. And now we also we heard the Apple Watch was coming out, and we we want to we want something for the Apple Watch now too. Um, that those things really do happen. So when you when you add something like that, it it does make sense, but it's also it also will will cause a bit of a scatter for for the student.
0: Yeah, that was actually I'm I'm glad you mentioned the Apple Watch because I. I was having my students read, it was a web class, beginning web, and we were redesigning a conference website. And uh, one student just out of the blue needed extra credit and was like, can we get extra credit? Yeah. No. Um, and then they, what if we like designed, an, I don't know why they said the watch, but they said like, let's, let's design a A watch, because you know they were playing around in XD and they had it had a watch template. (laughs) Yes. I was like, "Can we design a watch for it?" And I was like, "Well, do we need one?" And so then we started like having like really a good conversation about what would an app for a conference on a watch what would that look like? And that was like one of the most that was our probably our best conversation, totally unscripted, totally unplanned. And it's like, yeah, you know what? You're designing a watch yeah you're you're designing the interface well you know whatever you can there's not that much you can design but you're designing something how does that gonna how does this how do you do the schedule so the it makes sense and it helps you um but i digress yeah uh so no and and the reason i i originally was asking about the t-shaped in a context is i was thinking about you had ux out on the arms. You had HTML and CSS out on the arms. You had content strategy mm-hmm. out of the arms, but you really don't. Mm-hmm. Those, aren't, those are in the core. And so that's mm-hmm. why that you, the realization of like how you answered that kind of, you know, misshaped that question <laughs> originally. <laughs> but that said, you, during your presentation, you also threw up some statistics from the U S department of labor. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, for example, like two percent of I don't know what this is. What is the two? What is okay? So you put art direction is two percent at seventy four thousand jobs. Yeah. Graphic design is one percent out of you know out of two hundred and six two hundred sixty. So what is that two percent, the six percent, and the other ones before I mention them? What is that out of? Well, it's growth. Okay,
1: it's percentage of growth. Okay, in those in those jobs.
0: Okay, so uh, anyway, th- th- so back to why I, I'm, I'm rambling off some of these stats. So there's a t- expected a 2% growth in art direction, um, which would be about 2,000 jobs, I'm rounding. Graphic mm-hmm. design is expecting a 1% growth, which would be about 3,500 jobs. Mm-hmm. But then you get into like desktop publishing, which is a negative growth, which is expecting to lose 3,000 jobs. <laughs> And you get into web design mm-hmm. where it's a twenty percent growth at about 40,000 jobs. And yeah. then you've got software development, which is a 17% growth at almost um, 180,000 jobs. Looking at those numbers, graphic design has fundamentally changed.
1: Oh, yeah. I, I think that our web design name and our graphic design name just the handles those just those two names they're starting to maybe meld a little bit i don't necessarily think that's a good thing i think that we well anyhow i i i, I have questions about that
0: <laughs> can you okay uh, and i'm not asking this like as a from a judgmental place <laughs> sure sure but in the previous episodes I've had people who were like one woman she um wrote an entire article about the different names of that are being bandied about and i had I interviewed somebody else who's like doing hiring and he's like, I don't know what the heck to call this thing. I know what I need, but so like where's your take? What is your take on that
1: well i I'm an observer, I listen a lot and um i I, I take things in and I'll tell you I've had two um two interactive designers in to speak to classes in the past two weeks. And both of them have thrown up their arms when discussing their title. Yeah. They, they'll say they hate the name of their title. Uh, they don't understand, um, you know, why, why it's, uh, why it is that name Th- that everybody knows what it is that they do. Their title is going to change, um, that they're going to be one thing versus the other now. And maybe that the new thing is going to be a better title, but really what it is that they do is, uh, interactive design, coding, visual design, uh, product design, and then, you know, for some it's product management um, and then no design anymore at all. So, yeah, there's a lot of there there's a lot of questionable titles that that are being used right now. I, I don't really know what to make of it. So I'm listening a lot in that in those conversations.
0: Yeah. And that's I'm of the same mind because I just look at I don't know, I guess if I'm going to sum up my feelings on it is. Where I'm a graphic designer, I identify as a graphic designer, but I can design for a screen. I can design for paper. Mm -hmm. I can use any medium out there on the planet. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think kind of part of the problem is just like the industry is getting graphic designers who can only design for print. Mm -hmm. And that's why there is a distinguishing, that's why there's people are pulling out these names. Well, no, I do. I can also. And it, it, clearly, these numbers are saying that the growth area is web design. So, how do you say that you're a web designer by literally saying it?
1: <laughs> well, that's a good that's a good question. Like, I um I pulled up a job description for Cotton Bureau a couple of a few months ago. That was the one I go. did the interview with. <laughs> are you serious? Yes. That's funny so funny. Okay. Well, um, in this particular job description, um, that I pulled and again, this was a while ago. Um, I remember, uh, it it said something, um, it said something like, uh, maybe you're not exactly a designer who can code, but you're capable of turning your designs into live prototypes of some fidelity. Um, but if you can crank out production ready code even better, like that, that's a, uh, and and I love Cotton Bureau, so I'm 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 don't mean to really call them out. This could have been anybody. Um, it's just an example of uh, this. I don't know. Should I call it hemming and hawing? That's sort of a Southern thing, but it's a it's a wishy washy sort of like we we need this thing, but we understand it's kind of hard to find them right now. So what do we call a designer who has a really good visual sensibility and also knows something about Coding and prototyping. Well, that that's the designer. Then I'm I'm educating right now. But I, I also realize that um, you know this particular job description also asked for three to five years work experience. So now, if you go back in time and you're looking at uh, people who who graduated five years ago, um, yeah, you're getting a lot of print design. So I get it. I get it. You're you're in this place as a as a company that you need. To be bringing in somebody who's got this, I'll say dexterity again um, and and you need this, but you you don't know how to ask for it without exiling a whole uh, possibly a whole bunch of people that could be good for your company because really you want the right fit
0: yeah and and that was that was a fun episode because Jay Finelli, he's the owner of Cotton Bureau. Uh, mm-hmm. we talked a lot in that in that particular episode. I was asking like literally about that job description. <laughs> Um, But we got into the the fidelity part. And then the the conversation went down into nuts and bolts. Like, okay, using Envision to create a clickable prototype, is that a high enough fidelity for you? Or does it need to be? Or would the fidelity of throwing something into uh, bootstrap or foundation, Mm -hmm. a Mm -hmm. framework like that, is that, you know, What do you, is that what you mean? Yeah. yeah, How do you define fidelity? Because (laughs) anyway, it was just just a fun discussion and and you're right. This, nobody knows quite what to do with it.
1: I have thoughts on that too. If we can't, if we cannot be the ones who define what it is that we do, someone else is going to do it for us. So we're going to see a lot of graphic design, uh, jobs, uh, going away. And we're going to see a lot of web design jobs coming into play if we can't articulate as graphic designers that, oh, no, 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 this this is, this falls under our purview. This is what we do now. Um, and, and by the way, it's what we've always done. We design for legibility. We design for visual storytelling. We design for a message. Um, and this is now part of our um, toolkit. So there, there's never been a time where we didn't do this. But if but if we don't if we aren't you know raising our hand and saying that this is what we do um, and articulating uh, The role and defining the value of the design process in the context of this shifting tech tech landscape Then we're gonna let people who 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 may not know what it is that we do do it for us And that's really dangerous.
0: This is my like perfect um, Analogy for me. This is what crystallizes it for me is I can write HTML and CSS I can I could do it fairly well and I stay up to date on everything like that. But if you're, when you're like out there, like looking around, you will see a lot of CSS frameworks for typography where they're, they're calling it a typographic scale and you can pick. And they're like, so the ratio between like a headline font and a, I mean a headline and a body copy or like, you know, like like the different subheadings and, you can choose a typographic scale based on the golden mean, and then they can like mm. like a, a musical scale, and I'm those to me. I'm looking at those, and those to me scream. I am a developer. I know that typography is important, and I'm going to use a programming logic to solve that. I'm going use a. I'm going to use a, a mathematical equation to solve that problem. And so now they are the experts. These are what's in like modern magazines. It's like, oh, this it's important to choose a typographic scale. It's like, no, every font is different. (laughs) Every every context is different. You need like a you need a well-trained designer to like say this is what your scale needs to be and then develop the the CSS framework off of that, not in reverse. And we're gonna Mm -hmm. the same thing with animations. The it's who's designing how something moves in and off the screen. It's not the graphic designers because we don't have the tools other than mocking it up in after effects. Mm. It's the, it's the developers who are doing it because they're the ones who literally can code it. Right. They are right. making the visual decisions. Right. Without the visual training that designers have. And we better do something about it.
1: We, we absolutely have to. Um, I, I, uh, you know, I don't know. I, you know, I have, I've have thoughts about like how, how we can talk about this in terms of the short term and the long term. And this is, you know, something that you had asked me. Um, but you know, in the short term, I, 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 don't know if we're going to agree on this, but in the short term, um, we need to continue to teach graphic designers basic coding language. I think we both agree on that. Um, obviously CSS and HTML are must haves. Um, and I, I, I also teach um, After Effects to my students as well, or you know, when I provide them um, with with uh, projects to uh, to use After Effects too. And I, I think that um, as professors, we really need to not be afraid to try new technology in my class, in our classes. And I, and I realize that this sounds sort of like wild and crazy um, for for those of us who are maybe junior faculty and um, who are afraid of getting the bad teaching evals. Um, it, or the questionable teaching evals. And, the, and I've, I I remember, you know, I've gotten, I've, I've gotten, of course, we've all gotten them. Um, but, you know, for, for teaching and teaching from a learning standpoint, which is, I think, a really important thing to start to feel comfortable doing for every one mild teaching eval that I've gotten, I've gotten, you know, 15 great responses. You know, I, I show them, Everything that I come across um, that I think is going to be helpful to them—not just everything, but the things that are that are going to be helpful for them—I'll um, show them. You know, wireframing apps that that are are being rolled out and are getting good reviews. I'll show them prototyping applications that are, you know, in the same ilk and, um, you know, native, of course, native Adobe apps for building sites and prototyping, um, just so that they are aware of all the different tools that are out there. And so they understand that there is not one right way to approach this from a design standpoint. Um, and, and I think that we need to get, comfortable as professors teaching from that learning standpoint when we're talking about tech
0: you know i'm i'm glad you said that because i am the same way and i'll and i'm going to use envision it's coming out with a new program called studio and i don't know if yes. you're familiar with it or not I yes <laughs> and i was and and up until i talked to you i was super excited about it and i was excited mm-hmm. about it because it does everything that adobe xd does but it does it like sketch. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> and it adds motion. Yes. Animation, which none of the other ones have. But I was super excited about it until you said was like, you know what? But we can't, I, I should, I I just had this realization. I was like, I shouldn't get excited about it because that's not what I, 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 no, and because it just immediately dawned on me is that, you know, what I should do is instead of just saying like, oh, you know, this tool is going to be able to like let you do this. is like you are in charge of showing the client and the developer the animation. Yeah. Figure it out. Yeah. There yes. is no right or wrong way to do it. Because right. I was getting excited about studio because there was now going to be a right way to do it. Mm. And that's why I was like,
1: Oh. Yeah. Insert skeptical grunt here. I don't know. (laughs) I don't know about a right way. You know, something's going to come along and eclipse it. I love Envision um, Mm -hmm. and my students use it and they're very much looking forward to studio. Um, I've, I've, given um, you know Adobe uh, some feedback on XD and where it's where the gaps are my mm-hmm. students have plenty of feedback for them too by the way yeah. um, but where envision is starting to you know close some of those gaps um, but like I said at the very beginning mm-hmm. tis but a blip uh, yes. these things are happening they're rolling out so quickly that you know at least when it comes down to education as professors we we really need to just, just sort of let the um, discomfort of new, constant new technology wash over us, and just sort of keep teaching, um, keep teaching the the best laboratory practices uh, as opposed to teaching the technology. Which again, I do. We and we and we should, but you just can't put all your eggs in those baskets anymore. No,
0: absolutely not. Because there's a whole web design i mean once <laughs> yeah. once it became responsive it's mm-hmm. it's it's only what seven years old i mean because you could really like trace it back to when did ethan marcotte write that article and when did browsers start actually adopting the, the css3 media query not yeah. until fully until 2011 yeah so wow right? oh, yeah God. so our profession yeah. is that young mm-hmm. <laughs> like, of course we don't have um, there is no right tool to do it. There's no right process because we're figuring it all out together, right absolutely. now. Absolutely,
1: absolutely. Yeah. But from the but from the um, design students' standpoint, you know, they're these are 20 year olds when they were 13, they weren't, they, you know, maybe just learning about this. And by the time they get to us, they expect that there's been some, um, some decision that has come down from the heavens. And, um, and, and to, and I have said this before, um, I've, I, I invoke, uh, the, the quote here actually is by Meredith Davis. And, and of course it's not really a it's not much of a quote. She just said in, in one of our, uh, our conversations, I think at a, the AIGA design educators community, like this is a really exciting time to be, um, a gra- in graphic design. And, and I, oh my gosh, yes, it is because who wants to be in a stagnant field? There's no, obviously, obviously there's no growth there. Um, <laughs> you want to be in a field that is, that is expanding and that is pushing the boundaries of what it is used to be and what it could be. That's exciting.
0: Okay. Well, I, I started noticing the time. So I'm going to ask before I ask my, my final question, mm-hmm. um, uh, this is a huge question mm-hmm. and I don't know if you can answer it and answer it however you feel, you know, what, 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 how much time you have, um, <laughs> uh, I'm not going anywhere. So if design education is going to, dem- okay, I see, I don't even want to ask it this way now. But my original question was, if design education is going to meet the demands of the market, what can educators do? And I'm going to preface that saying that as design educators, in this super, like, pinnacle moment in time, I don't want to be meeting the demands. I want to be setting the expectation. Mm -hmm. I want to define what it is to be a designer because we can. We have this one unique moment. Yeah, <laughs> where design education could ignore the fact that we are we're behind on design, you know, behind on everything, and we could just leapfrog. Yeah. So that said, what? How was, <laughs> your thoughts?
1: Well, first off, that that's the motto right there: leapfrog. <laughs> like, it, like, if these are bullet points, which I actually, I, I. Mm-hmm. I've got I've got some I guess some bullet points on that. Um, but the, you know, at the top of the list, I think would be yeah. I mean, def- as as we said, you and I both have said in so many words, define what it is that we're doing. Just define what it is so that no one else can take that from us and no one else can do it for us. Um, but you know, if we're if we're talking about um, if we're talking about in the classroom, like the day to day you know, rubber meets the road, sort of like, um, day to day classroom experience. Um, I I really think that it's going to take, um, and you've heard me say this before, but like intentional adventuring, uh, human centered approaches, human centered approaches to design. Um, it's going to take those things to thoughtfully discover and shape the future of our profession. So we, I think we need to prepare for the long game. And, um, and what that means to me is, um, banking on human experience. Um, building environments in our classrooms for constructive conversations that really embrace failure, not, not encourage, just embrace it and learn towards success. Uh, That's what I, you know, I'm not, I'm not celebrating failure here necessarily. I'm embracing it with the students to, to learn um, more successful outcomes. Uh, Teaching, as you've heard me say for resilience and um, looking at more stuff and reading everything because it is all pertinent. We will make connections. So we, we want to bank on the human experience and, um, walk, uh, walk in the shoes of our user. If, if we, if we can, um, or we can do research to, to experience their journey with them and test, test, test. So research is really going to be important. Um, uh, building environments for constructive conversations that are going to embrace failure. Um, in all those tests that we that we tried to bank on the human experience, all these tests that we're doing, we're, we're not always going to be right. Those tests are going to be failing, you know, many times over. And as pr- practitioners, we know this. So getting students used to this really as quickly as possible is going to help them um, cut through the frustration that they initially feel so they can learn how to see what their users need more than feel their own ego, um, which is a, that's a tough one. You know, the crit is really good at that. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Um, teaching resilient, uh, uh, behaviors. So, so like, uh, speaking the, the, and what I just stated sort of speaks to this, but there's the user and then there's the client relationship that needs to be considered. So I've been, I've been the unpopular client, like I said, that changes specs in the middle of a project. And that really helps, my students um learn how to relook at things and and reconsider um save a copy and do a new one um to to restart and and feel empowered by that is hopefully how they're feeling um and then look at more stuff uh, sometimes the best way to solve a problem is to look at it from a new direction um we've heard that uh, one of the great benefits of a liberal arts education um which is what i have um, and and uh, where I teach is the exposure to history and philosophy and literature and biology and, and, and more um, in the arts and sciences. So there are learning opportunities in those lessons that impact our work um, as designers. And it's it's still just so important for the design student to take advantage of those and those classes and not just see them as, oh, another gen ed, gen ed requirement.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, I, I actually I agree with you 100% because I actually... You know, we do advising, and even at like beginning, like when it comes time for you know students to sign up for classes, whenever that comes around, I'm always barking like, "Okay, you want to take anything in the social sciences? The more, you, mm-hmm. the more you learn about how people operate, cultural anthropology, I mean, it's all those kind of things. Just you, those are unbelievable. I mean, yes, they, they make you better designers. Yes, um, they make you empathetic. Ugh, I hate that <laughs> <term>. <laughs>
1: I was really hoping you weren't going to go there. <laughs>
0: no, but it teaches you the it teaches you the methodology for understanding people.
1: Mm-hmm. Yes, it's, and you can use it to your advantage. Yes,
0: <laughs> for for the good or for evil.
1: That's that's the honest truth right yeah. there.
0: Um, all right, Mina. Before I let you go, is there anything that you are personally working on that you'd like to share, or something you want to promote?
1: Uh, well, thanks for asking that. Um. I I've just come off a, a really long year of about like 20 shows, and that's including some solo shows. So I'm I'm back in the studio right now, and um, so I'm I'm cooking up some digital work um, and some animated work, and um, that's going to be the culmination of some work I did this past summer when I uh, spent time at the Tipoteca Italiana in uh, Cornuda, Italy. Um, the Tipoteca is home to a museum of typesetting machines and letter presses, type specimen books and forms. It's like, it's it's such a magical place. And of course, it's in Italy. So it's even more amazing. So shout out to Tipateca. Um and uh, and I'm also developing some work for um, a new project with the Kentucky State Parks Foundation, which uh, should be
0: out sometime I think in mid to late spring. So I'm
1: I'm in the studio these days, Gary. I'm really I'm working.
0: That's awesome, and I and I'm glad you said that because this is a shout out to you, but it's also kind of like a, a lesson to everybody else. Is if anybody listening, still listening to this episode. <laughs> We we all we've talked about was variable fonts and user experience and research, but at the same time your practice is kind of your your practice recently was doing letterpress. I mean, yeah. so it's just it's you don't have to change your practice as a designer mm. to be really good at teaching what web what what design has evolved to. Mm-hmm. There's your place. You can find your place in it. That's yeah. All yeah i I just wanted to give that message to everybody
1: there's plenty of room here (laughs) yeah
0: all right well um so is anything else to add where is that was that it
1: oh no that's it that's it gary thank you so much
0: all right that's all we have time for today on episode 57 of design edu today i want to thank today's guest mina kalili for being so generous with her time i also want to thank the audience for listening and I want to thank the Design EDU Today hosting sponsor, DigitalOcean, and the CDN sponsor, Fastly, for making the hosting and distribution of these podcasts possible. I also want to thank the AIGA and the AIGA Design Educators community for their generous support of my research that led to this podcast series. If you like this podcast, consider leaving a review for it in the iTunes store and share it with your colleagues and friends. To discover more about the DesignEDU Today podcast and read the session notes and transcripts, visit the show website at designedu.today. To keep up with new show releases and updates about the podcast, visit the Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash designedu today or subscribe to this podcast through the iTunes and Google Play Store. Finally, if you would like to suggest topics for future episodes or give feedback to help improve the show, contact me through the show's email address at hello at designedu.today. Once again, thank you for listening to Design EDU today.